the Development Policy Centre podcast. In this episode, we bring you the plenary session of the 2015 Australasian Aid Conference on Aid from India. Presentation slides are available at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. Thank you, everyone. This is our final plenary session, which will focus on India as a provider country. I have to say, as everyone exited the room, amidst all the preoccupation with with Chinese aid, India is often overlooked. Um, But India has been a provider of South-South cooperation since its independence in 1947. India started largely as a provider of technical and economic training through its uh, famous ITEC program, but it has diversified vastly since the 1960s into its present-day portfolio, consisting of grants, loans, and lines of credit. Between 2001 and 2014, India's cooperation increased 12-fold to approximately 2.36 billion US dollars a year. Uh, In in 2012, India established the Development Partnership Administration in the MEA, Ministry of External Affairs, to oversee India's South-South cooperation programs. This past year, the Asia Foundation and uh, one of India's premier think tanks, the Research and Information Systems India, have been co-editing a volume on on chapters on Indian development cooperation. And and there are various chapters from Indian and international experts. Today, our two speakers are presenting material from their chapters. And yesterday, you may have heard the presentation uh, from my colleague comparing Chinese and Indian assistance. That is also a chapter. And we're very proud that we have a chapter from Stephen Howes and Jonathan Pryke that compares uh, Indian and Australian aid. And we're currently negotiating with publishers about the volume, but we hope that it will be released later this year. So now to turn to our panelists. Uh, Our first speaker is Professor Gulshan Sakdeva, and he is the professor at the School of International Studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi. He is chairperson of the Center for European Studies and also director of the Energy Studies program at SIS. Uh, and as a regional cooperation advisor, he headed the ADB, and, the, and he's also worked on Asia Foundation projects um, at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Kabul. And he has been speaking on Indian aid to Afghanistan, and I'm happy to welcome him to take the stage. Thank you so much. Well, let me first at the outset, let me thank Development Policy Center of ANU for the invitation and also to the Asia Foundation for making it possible for me to participate here. Now, I'll be talking about uh, Indian uh, experience with development cooperation in Afghanistan. But, you know, as was mentioned, although India is not a really new player in development cooperation, uh, the issue has become an important part of India's foreign policy and strategic thinking, particularly in the recent 10 years or so. Its development cooperation program has expanded considerably, both in uh, sectoral coverage as well as in geographical spread. Now, this growing Indian presence is facilitated by changing 
economic and foreign policy orientation as well as economic expansion. Now economic expansion if you can just look historically between 1850 and 1950 uh, the growth of Indian economy was less than, a per, less than 1 percent and then you also have roughly the similar numbers for population growth. So almost uh, a century of stagnation. Then from 1950 till 1980 you have a growth of about 3.5 percent per year average. Then in the 80s you have about 5.5 percent. Uh, then when we had 91 crisis since then, since 92, I mean there have been ups and downs but roughly the average growth has been about 7 percent per year. So this kind of growth and the outward orientation has helped India to reorient its traditional partnerships with developing world as well as forge new partnership with the major powers. Now it's emerging development cooperation with its neighbors in South Asia, in Central Asia, in Southeast Asia and now more with Africa I think has to be understood within this broader context. Uh, in fact, 2013 was the year when India's uh, development cooperation program abroad uh, was bigger than what the money India received uh, as an aid from outside. Uh, now India, as was mentioned, started its activities uh, you know, immediately after independence uh, in the form of uh, particularly grant assistance and technical assistance programs, particularly to Burma and Nepal. Then we had Indian aid mission in Nepal in 1954, the whole ITEC program in mid-60s, mid joint commission with Afghanistan in 1969. So these were some initial beginnings. Later, many of these activities were extended under non-aligned movement, South-South cooperation to so many other countries. Now since India is not a member of the OECD DAC, so it doesn't report to OECD, obviously. Still, OECD is also trying to follow all these non-traditional donors. So they have kind of looked at India's uh, profile, what they call it, ODA-like flows, somewhere between, say, about 400 million in 2007 to about uh, 800 million 2011-12. Now, some independent studies in India, uh, some of them have been sponsored by Asia Foundation, they came up that the figure for India is about 1.3 billion, uh, it could be more than this since the government of India doesn't come out like it has, uh, like the Chinese have now recently come out with two their white papers, the India still has not officially released those figures. But the figures are somewhere, one would say, at least definitely more than 1.5 billion every year. It could be more, it could be slightly less. Now, and the first time actually Indian finance minister in 2007 uh, in the floor of parliament, he mentioned that the figure is about 1 billion. That was 2007. Yeah, now it would obviously would have gone further. So uh, there are two broad trends one could identify from this. One, that Indian activities are becoming significant. And secondly, that there is a substantial increase now over, year, over the years compared to if one is comparing with the traditional donors where there is more or less stagnation. The three major areas where India actually uh, operates in development cooperation, one is these lines of credit, 
uh, in fact, about which another colleague would be talking later, roughly about $11 billion have been uh, committed through these lines of credit up to, uh, for roughly about 65, 70 countries in the last 10 years or so. And 60% is in Africa, mainly in infrastructure area. Then we have a capacity building programs. And those capacity building programs, we have about uh, 47 impanel institutes in India. Uh, they are running about 280 short-term, medium-term, and long-term programs. And every year, about 10,000 uh, candidates come from about 160 countries. And about 8,500 uh, fellowships or programs are in the civilian sector, about 1,500 in the military sector. Then you have... Uh, development pro projects with a grant assistance program. This is what, in fact, I'm coming to. Uh, mainly, in the, uh, earlier they were mainly, you can see, in uh, Bhutan, hydroelectric projects in Nepal, then we also have in Sri Lanka, and now, of course, in the last 10 years uh, in uh, Afghanistan. The institutional mechanism, as was mentioned, it's still being developed. Uh, now, if one is looking, India's program, particularly or India's uh, development cooperation program in Afghanistan. It's not that India actually entered Afghanistan only after 2001. In fact, if you look at the history of India-Afghan relations, even in the 1970s, uh, there was about 200 experts were working in Afghanistan from India. So it's not something that suddenly we discovered Afghanistan. It was already there. Now, in the last 10, 12 years, you are all aware what is happening in Afghanistan. Uh, so we had a Soviet project, then we have a uh, Taliban project, in between we have civil war, and then in the last 13, 14 years we have this whole international project where about uh, 70 nations committed about at least $120 billion uh, for only for the reconstruction. Now results are mixed. Uh, we know in certain areas there have been obviously a significant improvement, whether it's in infrastructure, women empowerment, health, education, etc., but of course, in many other areas, particularly looking at the security situation and uh, other areas, of course, there are serious difficulties. Now, in the last couple of years, there have been major debates. We are all aware about Afghanistan. You have plenty of conferences, plenty of reports. Now, all of them have identified so far there are three major transitions, which they call political, economic, and um, security uh, challenges. Now, Indian engagement in uh, from now in this new phase of uh, development, new phase of this project of Afghanistan, I think Indian uh, uh, engagement is going to be very crucial and I think it could perhaps would be expanded. Now, why India is there in Afghanistan? Uh, one is that, uh, like why everybody else was in Afghanistan, so obviously India was also there uh, in a similar fashion. So the, with a broad understanding that peaceful and stable Afghanistan is uh, crucial for regional stability, so, so far India has committed about $2 billion worth of assistance to Afghanistan, uh, mainly in the areas of uh, road construction, power transmission lines, hydroelectricity, agriculture, telecommunication, education, health, capacity building, etc. So, a couple of major projects, you have uh, power transmission line from uh, Pulay Khumri to Kabul, then you have a Jaranz Delaram road which was uh, uh, constructed by India, you have a, a national parliament, then you have a Salma Dam project in Herat, and then about 150 small development projects and many other projects. Now, normally, uh, uh, I mean, the strategic location of Afghanistan is very important for India, 
particularly in the context of uh, difficult India-Pakistan relations. Uh, but importance of Afghanistan for India is much larger than this narrow uh, India-Pakistan uh, context. Once uh, Afghanistan become relatively stable, um, I think it has the potential to alter India's continental trade. In fact, I have been doing my research for the last couple of years. Uh, if one is looking, India's trade... Uh, just with uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, CIS countries, and Europe, last year itself it was about 180 billion already. And if one is just extrapolate on the basis of last couple of years uh, trends, I think one can easily see somewhere India's trade with this region between 400 to 500 billion every year. At the moment, 99.9% of this trade is via sea because India-Pakistan border is closed, India-China border very little is happening. So. Uh, if there is a little bit improvement here, so at least even if 20% of Indian trade actually start moving from this direction, from Pakistan, Afghanistan, further Central Asia, so you are talking about at least 100 billion of Indian trade passing through this region. So that will basically, uh, as a result of this, many of uh, all the infrastructural projects will become economically viable. Uh, there are plenty of plans, but you know, because of volumes, uh, still uh, they are not there. So within this particular context, I think India has supported the whole RECA process, Regional Economic Cooperation Conference in Afghanistan, the New Silk Road Initiative, as well as the whole Istanbul process. Now, as India has committed you know, significant resources to Afghanistan, you know, its own experience could have serious impact on evolving Indian development strategy. It seems, I mean, of course, I mean, normally... Uh, uh, the government documents as well as all the speeches may not really give you the clear picture, but if as a student of uh, international relation, if one is trying to see what India is doing in Afghanistan or why India is doing, uh, what one could uh, guess that through this development uh, partnership, India hoped to achieve certain objectives. These include political objectives, some influence in Kabul, economic objectives like preparing the whole strategy for South Central Asia economic linkages, diplomatic objectives, which could be to be considered an important regional or global player, strategic objectives to new outlet to Afghanistan and Central Asia, and in a very cynical manner, you could also say that you can bypass Pakistan and you could get new outlet to uh, Central Asia and uh, Afghanistan. And then long-term capacity building, fellowship training, because in fact, uh, interestingly, that every year 1,500 Afghans also come to India for uh, a short, I mean, for four years, uh, for masters or for uh, uh, graduate courses. And of course, the humanitarian, humanitarian objectives, uh, you know, uh, which normally are the case with any development cooperation. Now, if one is looking uh, various opinion polls as well as uh, close India-Afghanistan partnership culminating into strategic partnership. In fact, India was the first country with whom Afghanistan signed strategic partnership. In fact, they signed even later with the United States. Uh, this indicates uh, that uh, many of these objectives perhaps uh, have been achieved significantly. Uh, Indian development efforts have also been relatively more effective compared to other donors in Afghanistan. Uh, and Indian policymakers have also clearly indicated at every forum, that in Afghanistan, India doesn't have any exit policy. 
On the contrary, uh, contemporary, uh, on the contrary, in fact, there are uh, signs or indications that India might be actually involved much more uh, than what it has been so far. It could be in the military training, it could be in many other areas of providing military equipments to Afghan national security forces as and when uh, those kind of requests come from Afghanistan because these are part of any way of strategic partnership agreement if you read very carefully. Uh, at the same time, there are also proposed big investments, particularly in the mining sector. Uh, in the iron ore sector, a couple of Indian consortium of Indian companies have won three major projects of about $10 billion uh, in Bamiyan province. And of course, you have a tapi gas pipeline. So if these projects actually go through and become operational, then obviously it will have a serious implications for Indian development strategy that through these development partnerships, actually you could achieve much larger objectives. But for future projects, I think India needs to uh, do thorough homework uh, in project selection as well as uh, because it perhaps needs to go for those projects where it has more comparative advantage because some of those major uh, um, infrastructure projects in which India was involved, particularly power transmission line and others, I think perhaps uh, in the hindsight one could say now that uh, it could have been better if American would have spent money there because India has much bigger advantage in many other sectors. There is also need to involve more uh, Indian NGOs into the, this, these development projects. Some of them were already involved, but that those were relatively on a very small development projects and women empowerment, etc. And of course, working with the other partners, particularly uh, uh, with the traditional donors. Now, if one is looking, uh, where are the areas where trilateral kind of cooperation is possible in Afghanistan? Now, there are certain areas where India is involved in similar kind of projects where Europeans, Australia, or uh, Americans are doing the same job. You have capacity building and training, so India has all this capacity already built up, so perhaps it could, some of those projects could be worked together. In the area of agriculture, rural development, this is one area where I think uh, India can very well work with many other donors. Uh, there is also uh, e-network now India has created in Central Asia and in Africa, so that's one area where again there's a possibility of working together. Uh, India is also going to open up a new university in Central Asia. So, you know, these are many of those projects and of course uh, building of uh, democracy, uh, um, uh, institutions of democracy because normally India does not uh, believe in promoting democracy but at the same time since it has its own experience with democracy. So if as and when if there is any requirement or if there is request to providing a uh, certain kind of assistance in election management or monitoring or anything else perhaps these are the areas where and uh, other in infrastructure projects. Now one of the major pro problem with the, uh, not just only in Afghanistan but overall with Indian uh, development cooperation is that Indian government still has not really come out with clear-cut strategy. They do not come out even the figures, so you have to really come calculate your own way. So that's where the figures vary. So since you do not have any um, objectives in the first place, then you to achieve those objectives, you do not have any strategy. So if you do not have even, I mean, of course they do have. It's not, it's not there. But at the same time, they don't come out. It has not been there in public. So since you do not have that objective, you do not have strategy, you do not have facts, uh, then how do you really evaluate those projects? So since you cannot evaluate professionally, you do not know 
whether they are really very useful or not or to, whether they are able to achieve. But in the other way, this is also one would say, this is also a difference between traditional donors and non-traditional donors because if you already have list of projects and this is what you want to really achieve because these are mainly recipient driven projects that you know whatever they are asking you are just providing them if you can provide with resources and with expertise so you are not going with already with the list that these are the things which are good for you so in that sense the strategy is if not having strategy is always good because whatever they are asking if you can provide something you give it to them uh, rather than just going that, you know, yes, you do need women empowerment, you do need democracy, you do need health and education, and this is what perhaps we have to give you. So it's, in a sense, it's evolving, but I think in the medium run, you will need more clarity, more strategy, and more figures and numbers. And as India is a democracy, I think questions will be raised. At the moment, perhaps, this is not, uh, these kind of debates are still not happening in India, but I think in the years to come, I think there will be much more clarity uh, in the kind of uh, uh, you know, uh, development cooperation India is involved. And then I think uh, the government is already evolving that kind of uh, structure within the government structure. So I think this is also going to be useful, much more transparent, and then perhaps we'll be able to evaluate even Indian projects in more so-called professional manner. Thank you. Thank you very much, Gulshan. We'll turn to our next speaker, who is Mr. Prabod Saxena. And Mr. Saxena is currently Senior Advisor to the Executive Director for Afghanistan, Bangladesh, Bhutan, India, Lao PDR, Tajikistan, and Turkmenistan at the Asian Development Bank. He formerly served as Joint Secretary in the Bilateral Cooperation Division of the Department of Economic Affairs in India's Ministry of Finance. And this position charged him with bilateral relations and dialogue with India's major partners, including issues of economic diplomacy. Prabhu? Uh, thank you so much. Uh, Professor Gulshan has given you a broader perspective of India's developmental cooperation. I will only be concentrating on one aspect of it, and that is on the lines of credit. Uh, the lines of credit actually started as such after two decades of India's independence when government of India started giving lines of credit to some of the friendly countries uh, through budget support. The money used to be drawn from government of India budget and then extended to the other countries. However, if you look at the India's aid history, 2003-2004 comes out as a watershed year. In the budget on 28th of February 2003, the finance minister made three major announcements. Number one, as far as the incoming aid is concerned, we will severely restrict the number of eligible bilateral partners. Secondly, we will prepay a huge amount of aid loan taken earlier. And thirdly, which is most importantly, India will launch its own program of extending lines of credit through a major scheme, which now is known as IDRs. That is India Development and Economic Assistance Scheme. Now, earlier, India used to draw money from its own budget, but this is not the case. The scheme says that Exim Bank of India will raise the money in the foreign market in US dollars, will lend to the countries on the stipulated rates, and the interest subvention will be given by Government of India. Government of India will also guarantee, counter-guarantee, 
you will get the original guarantee from the borrowing country, but the government of India will give a counter guarantee to its commercial wing, that is Exim Bank. So that is how the scheme started operating in 2003 and 2004. And there is a scheme which was formulated in 2004, which has been uh, revised in 2010, which basically lists that what is the objective. And these objectives actually have a purpose of giving a direction, but over the period of time, it has also given a huge amount of debate whether the idea of lines of credit is a financial product to be operated on commercial lines, or is it a diplomatic tool or something of a strategy? The guidelines basically provides that the countries are grouped into three, HIPC, LIC, and LDC. There is no attempt to classify the country. The classification is already as per the international best practices. These are the terms and conditions of the LOCs. And I will request you to actually note that for HIPC and LIC, it is fixed rate of interest, which obviously has become a major issue now. How, when we, I will come to some of the problems with the product and I will discuss them. The scheme very clearly says that this is a scheme to promote India's economic interest and therefore to that extent it's a tied loan. It very clearly says that 75% of the goods and services have to be sourced from India. And this is, uh, also takes me to the entire issue of ODA as per OECD definition. In my view, this is not an ODA. It can never be an ODA for the simple reason that it's a tied loan where 75% of the goods and services upfront have to be sourced from India. There are some suitable relaxations which are permitted. The strength and weakness of this product is that we go by country systems of procurement. The multilateral development banks do not honor country systems. It's a huge debate which is going on both in World Bank and ADB. But as far as lines of credit of India are concerned, we honor country system of procurement. And as I was telling you before, it is Exim Bank which is the administrator of this scheme. This is the position of LOCs at the moment. All my statistics which follow will be only till 31st of March 2014 because our financial year is from April to March. But in this, I have given in parenthesis the latest status. So we have these numbers of LOCs, over 64 countries, and the total exposure is about 11 billion. So this is how, if you can look at the map, the sketch of the LOCs in last one decade. If you look at the map of the world, a very rough sketch, this is how you will see where our LOCs are operating. Now, what is happening is that over the last couple of years, LOCs have grown in almost all possible manner. In terms of sheer amount, as a percentage of entire bilateral assistance basket, Professor Gulshan gave you the other aspects of the bilateral. But now, lines of credit probably is the biggest ticket of India's bilateral assistance. The Exim Bank is not only a LOC bank, but LOCs are growing in terms of its total balance sheet. And as far as the LOC portfolio of Exim Bank is concerned, more than 99% of it is occupied by the government of India-sponsored LOCs. This is how 
it has grown over the years. This gives the outstanding loan at the end of the financial year. 31st of March, it is 4.4 billion. And on 31st of December, I just inquired, it is about 4.7 billion, with a disbursement of around 1 billion a year. And the LOCs, as I was telling you, as far as the Exim Bank business is concerned, now it is almost 39%. This is how the sector-wise distribution of LOCs is. LOCs is basically for infrastructure, and as like any other multilateral bank also, it is energy and transport put together, which constitute about 50%. But as compared to at least Asian Development Bank, where I am working, this is much more varied. It talks about rural electrification, it talks about sugar industries, it talks about agriculture, it talks about all type of, including railways. There has been some shift in the last five years. Railways became slightly prominent in Africa, but more or less, like any other multilateral or bilateral donors, we are basically constrained by our own resource base. And by and large, I would say it is energy, transport, and huge construction, pure infrastructure, as you call it. Now, this is a figure which will give you an idea as to how much is our exposure to HIPC countries. It is almost 65% in terms of numbers of LOCs, followed by LIC and MIC. But if you look at the volume of credit, then MIC credit is much more than the LIC credit. Also because probably they have capacity of operating and administering bigger projects. Uh, this is an indication of the top 10 recipient. The Prime Minister, Mr. Modi, went to Nepal about three months back and he announced $1 billion LOC to Nepal. So Nepal will definitely factor in when I redraw it at the end of this financial year. But look at this. It was basically, at one point of time, a neighborhood intervention. But now, out of 10, six top recipients are in Africa. And because of a recent announcement in 2011, I am sure that maybe Africa will be around 8 to 9 out of 10. So Africa has become the focus of LOC's intervention. And this is what I am going to now speak about for some time. In 2011, at the Addis Ababa India-Africa Forum Summit, the Prime Minister announced that in next three years, five billion additional LOCs will be given to Africa. And we have a cabinet approval for five years of 8.5 billion, of which 70% has to go to Africa. The reason why this breakup, you can see that Africa is Almost 62% of the LOCs are in Africa, then about 37, 38 in Asia, Latin America also, then CIS, and maybe one or two in Pacific. And if you look at the, in terms of uh, value, then also it is Africa, which is predominant in our portfolio. Within the continent, it is the East Africa, which has received the maximum uh, LOCs followed by West Africa. And I would like you to uh, just have a look at this uh, uh, table for a minute, which actually sums up as to how 
our exposure to Africa has been increasing over years. And you would notice that in 2012-2013, that is immediately after the announcement of the Prime Minister, as much as 97% of the flow of LIC credit was to Africa. In 2010, it wasn't so much because that was the year when India declared 1 billion US dollar lines of credit to Bangladesh. So this is another depiction of the same telling you how Africa is becoming so important in India's developmental cooperation programs. This is in terms of numbers. African LOCs are much more than the rest of the world. But in my paper, what I have actually discussed it, that after having given a background of how LOCs are, that it is a time to have a look at how we administer these LOCs. They started as a pure infrastructure interventions, but over a period of time, we have taking up knowledge-based LOCs, and there are various countries which are actually interested in setting up IT parks and other Indian knowledge industry-based LOCs. I will only be discussing, and I have discussed in my paper only the structural issues. I have not discussed the protocol issues, the process issues, and I have basically talked about as to what we can do to make this financial product of the international standard. The lingering debate, the first debate is a comparison with China. And China and India, in my view, operate in two different spaces. There is no point chasing this comparison. For the Indian policymakers, it is more important to strengthen their product rather to be in this endless chase with China. The another issue is, which I really I don't know whether I should raise in Australia, which has recently dismantled this OS8, <laughs> because I am calling for a professional agency in India. Professor Gulshan spoke to you about development partnership administration, a division in MEA, but this is only a change in form. It's not a change in substance. So in my view, we need a professional agency to actually administer it. Because Axiom Bank is a commercial bank with its own limitations. Particularly if you are dealing with sovereign countries, are there issues of diplomacy, then they feel extremely limited and constrained. So there need to be a professional agency which can administer it like any other professional agencies. Then, as I was telling you that now the LOCs, there has been slight shift in the focus, but it's still primarily they are infrastructure LOCs. And they have been extremely successful in securing the Indian interest. There is no empirical data to suggest so, but the very fact that large number of Indian companies have stayed back in the country after the LOCs have finished shows that as far as the original objective of the scheme is concerned, it is very well served. I will be, so now the honeymoon period of these LOCs is over. Why the honeymoon period is over? Because moratorium is over and we are having the problems of overdues. And a major problem of overdue which occurred in 2012 and 2013 was with respect to South Sudan. And this is not something which is peculiar to India. In fact, there is now a group of what to do with the South Sudan debt, whether it is World Bank or any other, I'm sure, including China. In 2012, we have reached into an agreement, but that is more an agreement of technicalities, which has reduced the overdues, but the very fact of the matter is that 
Now, actual flow of money has come from Sudan, and some other countries are also falling in this trap, which is causing a very severe stress on the capabilities of the Axiom Bank to raise money further. Now, on the implementation side, I was, I was telling you that the strength of the program is that we go for country systems, but that is also the weakness of the program. There are issues of procurement, there are issues of uh, integrity, and many times because of lack of capacities, the DPR which are produced are both not credible, and in some cases, they do not even are of a good integrity. So in my perception, the most important thing is now to insist for a very credible DPR. That is the way to begin with. A beginning has been made in 2011 when a standing committee has been constituted, which has started looking at these projects more precisely. So this is what I have spoken to you, that it is important that we should fund DPRs. Funding of DPR should be a part of the project. If the project does not succeed, let it be a grant. If it succeeds, you can include it as a part of the loan assistance. Even if not, it's not such a big amount. Government of India can always provide for it. But it is extremely important that we go for a good DPR. But unlike ADB and World Bank, we should start distinguishing what level of DPR do we need. We need a very sophisticated DPR for a hydro project, maybe not so for an agriculture project. So that distinction and discretion should remain. On the selection diligence, as I was telling you, that if we can have a good DPR and if we can, at the moment, a huge amount of money is given as advance, that is also reason that why some of the fly-by-night operators have entered. Time lag is another issue. We are very quick as far as announcement is concerned, unlike a multilateral institution which take two and a two and a half years for a project to mature, but once the project is approved, then the MEA keeps on waiting for an appropriate occasion to announce it. As a result of which, this is, in my view, defeating professionalism. I am also uh, requesting for a project management consultant right from the bidding state. And another problem is that we do not talk about technical assistance at all. Whereas in my view, India is extremely competent to extend technical assistance program, they are appropriate, they are adaptable, and they are very affordable. There has to be a proper monitoring system, both in India and in the host country. I had the occasion of visiting some of these countries to see, but somehow there is no protocol of either monitoring or of these visits. Uh, I was, as Antia was saying, in my previous tenure looking after bilateral partners, we had regular dialogues with even small partners like USAID and AFD and KFW. Then why should we not, in India, start holding regular dialogues when our exposure is to the extent of almost two billion a year? Sustainability is another issue. We should go for post-evaluation. And as I was telling you, that there has been some, some improvement in this matter, but it is still necessary for us to consider it in a more holistic and professional manner. Supply LOCs are another major issue. They appear to be very easy to deliver, but in fact they are the most difficult because when you supply an LOC, you don't have a bigger picture. You just supply an item and vanish. I can give you an example of a cement plant in DRC where the machinery was the lines of credit item. It has reached, it has reached three years back. 
that cement plant is nowhere. <laughs> so you have to actually look at supply LOC as a part of an intervention and not as something independent. And um, in, I, I can also give you an example of Tanzania where the tractors which they give to the farmers is being done through army. Why? Two reasons. One, army is better equipped to recover the money from the farmers. And secondly, and most importantly, it can be uh, after service through their workshops. <laughs> so this is a very good innovation. That is what we like in DRC and in CAR where we have given buses. The buses plied for five good number of years, but there was no system of maintaining them, of providing for spare parts. So now good number of them are idle in the uh, parking lot. So supply LOCs are a favorite for the suppliers, but it is something if we took a bigger picture, we should tread them with great caution. Finally, I am coming to uh, the guidelines. As I was telling you, in the last five years or so, what has happened, LIBOR has been behaving very low, as a result of which fixed rate of interest LOCs have become far more expensive. This is not a crisis which is affecting Indian LOCs. It is in multilateral bank also. We are very slow to react. But the fact of the matter is, as of today, an MIC is much better paying you floating rate of interest than an HIPC or a LTC countries. We have to respond to these situations. We may say that we made them only in 2010, it is only four years from now. No. If you have to actually make your financial product more effective, we must revise these guidelines and provide for some of them, which I have discussed in detail in my paper. LOCs, in my view, have been extremely successful, and India is now almost a net exporter of developmental assistance. What we get, what we give, and what we prepay, I think uh, what we get is a little percentage of that. It has given a contextual background to build relationship with resourceful, rich countries. And uh, it's difficult to actually make a direct uh, a relationship between how it has benefited the Indian private sector. But, but like other countries, the private sector in India has gained tremendously, not so much public sector, from these lines of credit that is again a strength of this product. And uh, finally, my view is, and it may be a personal view, that if you want to make the product a world-class product, you must remove the tight part of it. In 1991, when the India decided to liberalize, there was a large hue and cry. All the Indian businessmen said, we will be finished. We will be nowhere. After 20 years, not only Indian businessmen are surviving and thriving in India, they are all over the world. So we are now in a position when we should remove this bar. Once we remove this bar, we will not have that much issues of procurement. We will not have that much issues of selection. We will have good people and a good product is a much better ambassador of India than a product which may not be that good. This is what I have to say. Thank you. Thanks very much to both our speakers for very uh, frank and self-critical comments. It's refreshing. Um, we are going to take one round um, because of lack of time. So I would like three very short and succinct questions, please. I'll take one from here, one from there, one from there. Over here, anyone has a question? Questions? Okay. Over there, one in the back, and a third question here. Okay.
We'll start from the woman over there. Hi, um, I'm Sally Ann Vincent. I'm DFAN and currently the Head of Development Corporation out of the Australian Embassy in Kabul, Afghanistan. Um, very interesting presentations, thank you very much. Um, based on my experience in Afghanistan, I'm really interested in that nexus between the non-traditional donor and the traditional donor and some of those development effectiveness indicators, transparency, accountability, monitoring and evaluation. It's come up a few times over the last couple of days. I was just wondering if I could get maybe both of you to explore a little bit more what India, what the challenges and what the benefits will be for India in getting more involved in that donor coordination space that traditional donors plan. Thank you. I'm going to take all three questions first, if you don't mind. The one at the back, yes. So thank you very much for two really great presentations. My name is Raymond McMillan from WWF. Just a quick question. What would be the main drivers of the move towards Africa? So you've talked around in the future, maybe the top eight out of ten. What's really driving, what are the, some of the fundamental drivers that are making that happen? And the third question? Uh, yes, I'm interested to know more about the strategic partnership agreement uh, India has signed with Afghanistan. How long is it? What it contains? And knowing that Afghanistan's stability is important for the region, especially for, Afghan for India, uh, in relation to Pakistan, uh, how committed India is to help Afghanistan overcome its insecurity? Thank you. Thank you for your questions. Um, I'll turn it to the panel. Gulshan, would you like to start? Yes, uh, there are two, two questions on Afghanistan, one on Africa. Uh, well, India is very much committed to Afghanistan. There is absolutely no doubt about it. As I said, there is no exit policy as far as India is concerned. If you read very carefully, India-Afghanistan strategic partnership agreement. Uh, apart from many things, one of course is the whole institutional mechanism of uh, national security advisors and, and the foreign minister, they'll be meeting regularly. Um, these are protocol issues, but at the same time, uh, two things which I would, uh, which comes up very clearly from uh, this agreement. One is uh, that India would be supplying uh, and training Afghan security forces and as and when requested. So, uh, so India has committed this to Afghanistan with the of Afghan government. President Karzai had given a list of products which actually uh, he was hoping to get from India, but now we have a new unity government and uh, they are still working on certain details, but we are committed. As and when any kind of requirement is there from Afghanistan, India is hardly willing to cooperate. And I think there are serious debates within India to now extend uh, particularly uh, training to Afghan national security forces either within Afghanistan or in India. But of course, the request has to come from Afghanistan because they have to decide about it. Now, the donor coordination and on uh, evaluation of projects in Afghanistan. Uh, donor coordination has been a very serious problem in Afghanistan. Uh, well, uh, a couple of areas I mentioned in which there is no possibility, because even most of the Europeans now, when they're out, uh, their troops are out from Afghanistan, but if they're committed at least to 2024, they would be, uh, they have agreed to provide development assistance to Afghanistan, as with many other countries as well. So, since all of them would be involved in Afghanistan in one way or another, and many of the areas, if you look at whether it's education, it's a capacity building, it's a agriculture, it's a infrastructure. So these are again the areas that India is involved. So there is not a possibility that we countries can work together. And you know, in some areas India definitely has, say, for example, uh, comparative advantage. 
uh, or regional countries, not just one India. Say, for example, if you have to, the, one of the major challenge for Afghanistan is to, now even if you have millions of kids are going to school, but after that, they will be going to college and the universities. Uh, there is no master's degree in Afghanistan. So, you know, obviously there is plenty of scope that you, know, you can actually train or Afghanistan. But, you know, if you look at Europe, if you look at Australia, if you look at the US, it's not only for the of money. Like every year, 1,500 students come to India. Now, I don't, I cannot imagine Europe or US or Australia giving 1,500 visas to India. It's not about So if they are coming to India, they will be coming to regional countries. So even if they come back to Europe or to US, after finishing the study, many of them may not go back to Afghanistan because of rational reasons. So you know, these are the kind of uh, uh, advantage which perhaps, you know, working together traditional donors also with the regional country that could be tackled. Uh, now, why India is going to Africa? There are many reasons, of course. One is uh, uh, African countries are growth rate is pretty high in most of those countries in Africa. At the same time, uh, the kind of resources which countries like India and China would need, those resources are available. So you have to build linkages uh, now with all those economies. So, and one of the geopolitical reasons would also be many people have written. Since China was going in a big way, so also India would also have to find out China about that in the way. So this one of the reasons, but there are many reasons because this is not a dynamic area. Uh, and you know, India has traditional uh, uh, you know, close relations with most of the African countries and there are people. And uh, many of those projects, whether you look at the infrastructure or the regional or the South South Corporation, And there is a big diaspora engine there for many of the world. So there are many reasons why he is now moving in a relatively aggressive way. I have another take on the state, you know. India was in Africa and nobody was in Africa. So it's only a portion of restating yourself from other than historic countries. Because the Indian African relationship predates the independence. Mahatma Gandhi started his independence from Africa on about 200 years back. And when India became independent, the first foreign affairs Intervention was in Africa, and Africa was being electrified all Western and other parts. So it is only recently that India has to scale up its African intervention which has been there for a far longer time because of what occurred by the state. Thank you very much. I think I'm going to pass it back to Stephen and before we adjourn for the tea break. Thanks again to our panel. been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.